0: Hey there, welcome to the Augustos. My name is Bill Dykstra. Do you have a quote from scripture that, you know, kind of sums up your faith life? Something that distills what Christianity to you really is, what it's all about? I was once driving with a friend and we were talking about Matthew sixteen twenty-four. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. My friend matter-of-factly said, well, that's it. That's what it's all about. For you, it might be something different. It might be a different verse. It might be the second chapter of Paul's letter to Philippi. That's a popular one. More popular is John 3.16. For me today, I kind of cheated. I have two. But they both come from Paul's first and second letters to the Corinthians. So I kind of feel like I can treat them as one. I'm just cheating. But um, anyways, what I would like to do is today is to share them with you and tell you how I think they describe something of walking with the Lord. What it's like to walk with Jesus. And I think it might be commentary that is rarely given in the Catholic world. So let's begin. As you may know, the Christian community in Corinth had some problems. It was five years after Paul had established a church there and already there were, you know issues there was sexual immorality, liturgical abuses, infighting, idol worship, and egotistical church leaders. And I know that none of that sounds familiar at all to us. But, at any rate, Paul goes through and he addresses each problem head on. He does so as a caring father, recognizing the severity of the errors, but offering helpful and clear advice. But I think there are times throughout these epistles where he cuts to the very core of all the issues in Corinth, everything that they were dealing with. There are also passages, these are also passages, rather, to me, that really distill and describe the Christian walk. Now, the first passage that I would like to talk about comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And Paul is railing against these leaders who just think they're the biggest hotshots. He says, You already are filled. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that, you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are... "'Fools for Christ's sake. "'But you are wise in Christ. "'We are weak, but you are strong. "'You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. "'To the present hour we hunger and thirst. "'We are poor and clothed and buffeted and homeless, "'and we labor, working with our own hands. "'When reviled, we bless. "'When persecuted, we endure. "'When slandered, we try to conciliate.' We have become, and are now, as the refuse of the world, the dregs of all things. And in another translation it reads, The scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. That's kind of my favorite one. Paul begins by, he mocks the arrogance of some of the church members, and he flips their claims of superiority on their head. What is there to boast about when, if you're a true follower of Jesus, It means that you're the least. Now again, as you may know, things did not improve too much in Corinth, and in the same year it was necessary for another letter. There grew factions who spoke out against Paul and claimed he was an imposter. In his second letter, he again speaks to the hardship that is necessary to be a follower of Jesus, but this time he goes a little further. To keep me from being too elated by the abundance of revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I begged the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. I will all the more gladly boast of my weakness, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. In the first instance, Paul is presenting this idea of loneliness being the preferred posture that God wants from his people. In the second, he doubles down on it. In the first, in chapter 4, he claims that no matter how much good a Christian does in the face of, you know, competing opposites, it makes them better than no one. Paul reinforces the sentiment in the following letter, stating that the will of God and your deification are brought about more clearly in the state of utter weakness. That's really strange. So how do we parse that out? So the first time I heard this passage from 2 Corinthians discussed, it was in a talk entitled, Recognizing Your Need for a Savior. In that talk, the speaker highlighted you know, musicians throughout the, throughout the decades who have observed this, this uh, brokenness in the world and committed it to song. One such song was Bob Dylan's, Everything is Broken. Broken lines, broken strings, broken threads, broken springs, broken idols, broken heads. People sleeping in broken beds. Ain't no use jiving, ain't no use joking. Everything is broken. Broken bottles, broken plates, broken switches, broken gates. Broken dishes, broken parts. Streets are filled with broken hearts. Broken words never meant to be spoken. Everything is broken. Seems like every time you stop and turn around, something else just hit the ground. Broken cutters, broken saws, broken buckles, broken laws, broken bodies, broken bones. Broken voices on broken phones. Take a deep breath. You feel like choking? Everything is broken. Every time you leave and go off someplace, things fall to pieces in my face. Broken hands on broken plows. Broken treaties, broken vows. Broken pipes, broken tools. People bending broken rules. Hound dog howling. Bullfrog croaking. Everything is broken. Now, it's a great song, but I'm a 90s kid, and I'm a Radiohead fan. When I think about the themes that Dylan is talking about, I think about the song Fake Plastic Trees. She lives with a broken man, a cracked polystyrene man, who just crumbles and burns. He used to do surgery for girls in the 80s, but gravity always wins. It wears him out, it wears him out, it wears him out. She looks like the real thing, tastes like the real thing. My fake plastic love, but I can't help the feeling I could just blow through the ceiling if I could just turn and run, and it wears me out. It wears me out. It wears me out. It wears me out. out. These narratives that Tom York is writing about are about plastic surgery and blow-up sex dolls, and it's a reflection of our own artificial fake plastic lives. When we're being honest, we can say that this is the shared reality. And it seems to me that most Christians would seldom deny that life outside of the faith is exactly this. It's fractured, broken. Many would say that the acceptance of Christ into your heart will begin to reverse these effects of woundedness. Jesus will make the bad go away. But yet in the scriptures, it's not the secular world that, is, that Paul is addressing here. What's shocking is that he's talking about his own life. Him, an apostle of the Lord. To him, the dregs of the world are those authentically living the faith. The dregs are like the grounds that are left in a pot of you know, delicious coffee after it's drank. They're the castaways. He says that perfection is brought about through becoming the castaway. Once upon a time, another life ago... My fiancé called me up, over the phone, and she told me that she didn't love me enough to marry me. It was about three months prior to the wedding. Now, she was a beautiful, devout woman, and I considered myself a lucky man. Yet, all of a sudden, the vision for my future, the one I had in my mind, it suddenly vanished. The person that I thought I knew, she was gone. She had just been away volunteering at a camp, and it was so shocking to my system that I actually had this thought that swam in the back of my mind that this woman that I was talking to, this woman I loved, was actually dead at the bottom of a lake somewhere, and the person that was on the other end of the call, she was some kind of body-snatching impersonator. Nonetheless, it was a relationship that had some serious problems. But in my own imperfect way, I still loved her. Now, up until that point, whenever things didn't go my way in life, I was prone to despair. I had these oh-me and oh-my moments. God, why did you not do something that would have prevented the unforeseen poor circumstances I now find myself in? However, after we ended the call, I had this moment of clarity a point of self-awareness, that this moment that I was in, that it mattered. I decided that this time was going to be different. I wasn't going to despair, and through the anguish and through the really emotional torment, I was going to double down on my love and my trust in God. So there, alone in my apartment, I began to sing. You give and you take away. You give and you take away my heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. It was a very weak moment, one of my most vulnerable. Yet through it all, it led me to something much deeper. Now, as I had mentioned before, I had heard that talk, that message, that we need to recognize our need for a Savior. Had I not heard that message, and had I not been presented The truth and scripture in that light, I'm not too sure I would have reacted the way that I did in this very important, life-changing moment. St. Paul is saying that our proximity to God grows nearer to the degree that we believe that we need him. In the gospel, it was always better to be a prostitute than a Pharisee, because at least the prostitute knows she needs God's saving help. And I think this is what St. Paul is getting at. He is speaking to this community at war within itself and with him. In the first letter to the Corinthians, he says, For who makes you different from another, and what do you have that you did not receive? We can confuse our devotions as some sort of accomplishment on our part. Even our piety can be of service to our egos. It is not our good works that makes us righteous, as Paul says, for, quote, Though we bless, we are cursed. We are still the world's refuse, no matter what we do. Nowadays, young people in the church are embracing tradition again, and rightfully so. However, there is a stumbling block in thinking that by doing so, by rediscovering the, the practices that were passed down from older generations, that somehow it means something great about you. Like, you must be this righteous fellow for doing so. Again, as Paul points out, what you have gained, the life of devotion and piety and tradition, has very little to do with your efforts. The claim that Paul makes, that his weaknesses are there for his perfection, fly in the face of anyone who believes that their own efforts contribute to some sort of semblance of true perfection. Eventually, we become like this community in Corinth polemical and sinful. I'm going out on a limb here, but I have a theory. You are likely familiar with all the political lines within the church today. They kind of mirror uh, all the factions that, uh, that are within politics just in general. And everyone has a faction, and their favorite corresponding church leaders to that faction. I think it resembles Paul's criticism of at the at the outset of the first epistle to the Corinthians he says quote each one of you says i belong to paul or i belong to apollo or i belong to kaiphas end quote i wonder if this imbalanced fixation to be on a particular side while already being baptized into christ is really just a desperate plea to have some feeling of righteousness for some reason it's not good enough to be in the church or to belong to Jesus, but to consign yourself with some contrived party. What a way to distract yourself from any sense of smallness that you might gain. Commenting on the passage from 2 Corinthians, St. Augustine says the following The more one easily conquers, the less one needs combat. But who would fight within himself if there is no opposition from self? And why is there opposition from self if nothing remains in us to be healed and cured? Therefore, the sole cause of our fighting is weakness in ourselves. Again, weakness cautions against pride. Truly, that strength and virtue by which one is not proud in this life where he could be proud is made perfect in weakness. Whatever your own personal weakness may be. Whatever vexations, failings, or problems you may be dealing with, they are there so that you might find humility. This is your, quote, thorn in the flesh to keep you from being too elated. This is not an acquiescing to sinfulness, though. As St. Augustine says, this is combative. Yet our human frailty I, think is, I like to think of it as kind of a, a fail-safe mechanism against the vanity that we can have for our own piety. If the Christian life was entirely something lived out on our own terms, we would be incapable of being humble. It is through our frailty that God is permitted to make those necessary adjustments where, in our more confident and prideful moments, they would remain hidden from him. Recently, Sarah and I have been re-watching Parks and Rec. It's a comedy about a parks department in a small city in Indiana. Eventually, introduced into the show is this uh, kind of city manager type by the name of Ben Wyatt. At first glance, Ben seems like a very efficient, professional, and normal kind of career administrator. He doesn't have any pronounced flaws. However, in an episode where he has to appear on TV to promote An event on behalf of the city, he unravels on camera. For some reason, simply being on television is too stressful and completely undermines all of his sensibilities. He becomes so nervous, he just babbles nonsense. Is there a bird in the studio? I'm pretty sure I saw a bird. He trips over himself, trying to do something good. To put it mildly, Ben is humbled in the experience where he wouldn't be otherwise. There's this really interesting dynamic that happens when we find the Lord. It was articulated in Derek Webb's song, I Repent. In it, he has this line, We trade our sins for others that are easier to hide. And this is totally a thing. We're like Ben Wyatt, and we try to hide this weakness from everyone. After finding Christ, typically, it's this world-changing event. And we get rid of all those nasty habits we once had and we once flaunted. However, after a while, those flaws are they begin to reappear again, and we just maybe just place them in the background, and so no one can see them. Yet, they were just as present as they were before. They're just now hidden. Think about this. It's really strange. The one place where we should be able to disclose our weaknesses, and if we are to follow St. Paul, boast in them, is the church. Yet it becomes the main place where you put on a facade, a fake, manicured version of yourself, one that is inoffensive to our more enlightened sensibilities. Instead, church becomes a place where we actually just hide from God. I've been reading St. Simeon, the New Theologian, again, lately. I love St. Simeon. And he has an interesting take on this dynamic, In talking to his monks about the importance of repentance, St. Simeon frames Adam and Eve's expulsion from the garden as a result from their failure to repent. Typically, we simply take the narrative that it was due to their sin which removed them from paradise. Simeon takes this all in a different direction. Adam, after having eaten the fruit from the tree, is asked by God, Adam, where are you? St. Simeon says this was God's attempt to goad Adam to repentance, to admit his fault to him. Sort of like when a parent walks into a room that their children have utterly destroyed. They ask the question, what's going on in here? When in reality, they very well know. However, Adam's response to God was to simply say that he was naked and thus hid. There is this back and forth between God and her foreparents. Adam would eventually deflect God's questioning to Eve. It was her. She deceived me. And like any parent, of course, God knew the injury of sin that was committed. He says, How do you know that you were naked unless you ate from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Again, allowing Adam ample time to disclose his weakness. St. Simeon says, it is though he, God, said, Do you really think that you can hide from me? Do I not know what you have done? Will you not say, I have sinned? Say, O wretch, yes, it is true, Master. I have transgressed thy command. I have fallen by listening to the woman's counsel. I am greatly at fault for doing what she said and disobeying thy word. Have mercy on me. But he does not say this. He does not humble himself. He does not bend. Simeon includes himself in Adam's weakness. The neck of his heart is like a sinew of iron, as is mine, wretch as I am. For had he said this, he might have stayed in paradise. Adam and Eve were hiding their weakness from God as a way to maneuver and navigate through the situation of their own. Humiliation. The result is a failure to properly repent. Had they learned, had they leaned into their weakness and disclosed it, they may have sooner regained perfection. I think this is a massive part of the premise of our whole faith, and it's that we are weak. And this is a status that does not change, and there's nothing that we can do about it. The good news is, our weakness is the scene to His greatness. It's only when we are weak that we are actually malleable. Our defenses are down, and God is permitted to work in our hearts. This is a reality very much expressed in the Divine Liturgy. Prior to receiving the Holy Mysteries, we pray the words, I believe, O Lord, and confess that You are truly the Son of God, who came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am first. Even before approaching him in the Eucharist, we must first admit our own weakness. Now, I don't know where you're at with your faith life. But I know people, and you might know people, who have walked away from the church. They've walked away from the Lord. From prayer life, from the sacraments, from a relationship with him. Now, I might be making some generalizations out of my own experience, but typically what i found in my own experience of things is that people who leave the church, they do so very quietly. And so, you don't really get all of the reasons why. And people are very reluctant to talk about it, especially with someone who is going to church. I think, though, from the little bits of information that you get back, I think that sometimes, sometimes I think that we give up because we encounter our weakness in such a way that it's so humiliating, that it's better to be a really great sinner than it is to be an awful Christian. Certainly, it's not the only reason why people leave the church. I mean, we live in the age of, you know, clerical abuse, and so that is something that is heartbreaking yet, I think, maybe different from what we're talking about here. Okay, so if I'm going to ad-lib and maybe try to wrap this all up, how would I do that? I think how I would do that is to say, if you're someone who is aware of your own kind of junkiness, if you, if you look at yourself and you're like, man, Bill, you're such a lame wad, and you're embarrassed about it, and you feel bad, just maybe have some hope and maybe lean into that. But invite Christ into that. So that you can become malleable. You can just let yourself fold in front of him. And that you can be shaped and you can be formed. I think I think that's what St. Paul is talking about when he's boasting in weakness. But maybe that's not you. Maybe you're not that person. Maybe you're like the really hot person in church that dresses really nicely, that you know, everyone looks to as like the perfect person and you're kind of buying into your own hype, maybe you got to take it down a notch. Maybe you got to maybe ask the mother of God to show you your sin, to show you your weakness, and to maybe reform the way that you think and you look at your own Christianity. You could also just be like me and someone who has had both the experience of being a complete lame-wad, absolutely humiliated with their internal life, with how awful of a Christian they are, and thinking that they're a hot shot. Uh, thinking that they've got, they're checking off all their boxes, and that, um, they're doing all the righteous things, and that makes them great for some reason. Anyways, thanks for listening to this, uh, to the sharing today. What we're gonna do next, I'm going to, uh, share with you who our May is for Mary icon winner is. Now, Be warned, global shipping is really junky right now. It's just greasy. Um, Who thought that, you know, shipping things from one country to another during a pandemic uh, was going to be a difficult thing? Back in March, we had a St. Joseph icon giveaway. That person is still waiting for their icon. Uh, These things are coming from Belarus. So, today's winner, who will get an icon eventually, is... The little flower. If you're on Instagram and your Instagram handle is the little flower, congratulations, you won an icon of the Mother of God. We're going to um we're gonna be waiting for you to contact us. If you don't contact us, we'll contact you eventually. But um yeah, congratulations and I'd like to thank everyone for again, thank you for listening. Let's ask those saints, because this is the Hagios and we mainly talk about saints. Let's ask Saint Paul today, and Saint Augustine, and Saint Simeon to to pray for us, that we would we would not be afraid to boast in our weaknesses, and that we would maybe disarm ourselves of these silly ideas of what Christianity isn't, and that we would take up, you know, Paul's message to the Corinthians, in a, maybe a little more honest and vulnerable way. That's that's all I have to say for today. Thanks very much for listening. This has been your Dose of Agios. Ciao for now.